Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 134 of the Motorcycle Men podcast. I am Ted Wrongway here in the V Twin Cafe in the corner booth, and welcome to another interview episode. And my guest today is a good one. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the show, and of course, for all Motorcycle Men episodes. If you would like to help out the show, you can do that by going to our website at motorcyclemen.us. And there you can click on the donate button if you'd like to help us out with a singular PayPal donation. And another way you can help us out is give us some feedback. Go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or indifferent. We accept everything and we enjoy hearing from you. And while you're at it, you can also send us an email to motomenpc at gmail.com or go to our contact page on the website and send us a note there. I read all of our email and... If it's a good one, we will comment on during our next show. Now, if there's one thing that gets my attention and intrigues me is adventure motorcycle travel and the people that do it, especially those that do the extraordinary. Many of us just do not have the means or the opportunity to take such a journey by motorcycle. The best that most of us can hope for is or expect is a trip to our favorite rally or just that long weekend ride. Uh, most of us have assigned ourselves with families, mortgages, and responsibilities that we love, but we also know that out there in the world is a lot of adventure waiting for us. And we pledge that someday we will make that journey, but we never do. So instead, we live vicariously through those that do, those that have and that will embark on these journeys that we only dream about and watch on our large flat screen TVs or on our computers. Now, my guest tonight is one of those who has lived the life of a regular guy and a hopeful writer who one day decided that it was time to take a trip by motorbike and in doing so became one of those extraordinary people. Hi, joining me now all the way from England, or do you prefer the UK? Uh, I don't mind. England's fine. Okay, fine. Um, the world traveler, continent traveler, Mr. Spencer Conway. How are you doing, sir? Hi. No, thanks very much for having me on. I do appreciate it. Look forward to having a chat. Yes, this is going to be great. I, I look forward to you know, my audience already knows that uh, part of this, uh, this interview started to happen and then didn't happen. But um, we're, we're, this is, is going to be a, a do-over. As we call it. Okay, right? no problem. Let's hope they're waiting with bated breath. <laughs> they are. They are. I know they are. But um, so, Spence, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, when you started riding the bikes you've owned and uh, what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm. I'm. Well, I'm in England at the moment, but I was uh, whisked away from England when I was six months old to Kenya. Lived in Kenya for six years, uh, then moved to Swaziland. Uh, rode boats. Uh, rode boats. I rode bikes from <laughs> really young. Um, five years old, I think, my first bike. My brother was into trials riding, so he had weird ones oh, like cool. Montessa. Yeah. Yeah, no, brilliant. Montessa's, Ossa, Maiko, those kind of bikes. Um, and uh, he got me into it, really. And then uh, as I got a little bit older, I got into adventure riding. So, yeah, I've uh, been at it most of my life, really. Great. Uh, and as far as it goes for the bike you own now, tell us about that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's a, it's a Yamaha XT660. But uh, I was a little bit naughty, actually. In Peru, I changed it to a 700. 
Um, it was because I had a, an extra weight on the back. She won't like me saying that, but that was Kathy, the camera woman. <laughs> I want to. Uh, so I needed a bit more power on the uphills, um, and it worked. Yeah, it gave me a little bit more torque just to, to pull away. But it's an XC660Z Tenere originally, 2009 model. Oh, so that's not the, it's not the Super Tenere, though. No, it's not the Super Tenere. People always assume that, because uh, a lot of people ride bigger adventure bikes now, they think it's the 1200, but no, it's the 660. I like it because I can throw it around a bit, Yeah, and uh, yeah. I fall off a lot, so um, it's, easy to pick, <laughs> it's easy to pick up. So let me ask you, with the bike fully loaded, how much do you think the bike weighs? Bike fully loaded with the two of us, a thousand pounds. Oh, so if that falls yeah, over, you're going to have a little difficult time to get it up. Yeah, absolutely, because obviously we've got the two of us on, we've got the weight of the bike, I've got a 23 litre tank, which is 23 kilos in itself, I've got two panniers, um, I've got the tent and sleeping bag, uh, and obviously the camera equipment. So yeah, it's a heavy boy. Wow, that is heavy. Yeah, when Thanks. I fall off, I, I generally take the panniers off. I take the the tent and all that off, and it's a, it's an easier lift. So it's a, when I fall off, I know I've got a ten minute process ahead of me. And when you're stuck in a puddle and there's oil pouring out, you know you try and do it a bit quicker. <laughs> but so uh, you get used to it. There are there are techniques, as you know, for lifting bikes. Right now, you did um, you circ circumnavigated two continents. That was uh, South America and Africa, uh, and you you used the Tenere for both of these trips, correct? Yeah, I did. Um, I started off the Yamaha, kindly enough, gave me a sponsor of the Tenere. It's the first thing I've ever had free in my life. I've always had uh, really useless bikes, and I fixed them up myself, buying them for like $50 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's like a kitty at Christmas when that turned up. Wow. And it's been amazing. Um, I have been offered other bikes, but uh, I just kind of I wanted to use this one. It's a beautiful bike. It's getting more and more stickers, so it's looking very rainbow-colored. <laughs> and... Uh, Rather than just change it each time for a new bike, I just thought, yeah, see how far we can get this one round. Okay. Well, what other bikes were you offered? I was I was offered a, a Honda Cross Tourer and um, the Africa Twin, and I was offered a CCM, which is a British-made motorcycle. Mm -hmm. uh, all great. I've got no negative things to say, but I'm six foot four, uh, nearly two meters. So uh, the CCM was quite a small bike, and I looked uh, a little bit like a giant on it. So. <laughs> Whereas the Tenere is quite a high bike. Yeah. Uh, it's got that upright position, the adventure riding position, so it suits me great. Okay. Now, what trip came first? Was it uh, Africa or South America? Yeah, Africa came first. So um, I started, uh, actually, I started in England um, from London. So I went across on the ferry. I went through Europe, through France, and then uh, my little trick here, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Swaziland, South Africa, then Congo, uh, Gabon, Cameroon, and then up the west coast, a few more countries there. 34 countries, 55,345 kilometers in nine months. Wow, you like to rattle those uh, uh, countries off rather rapidly. Can you say them backwards now? Oh, come on, don't do this to me. I'll have, I'll have, to, I'll have to ride it the other way around. Oh, okay. I'll have to go anti-clockwise. You just, obviously, you get to know them as you go around. It'd be a bit silly if you didn't. Don't get me on the capitals, though. No, I no. <laughs> did, did you make it a point to hit the capitals of each of the countries? No, actually, I do the opposite, oh, okay. Ted. I, I, I'm not a I'm not a city person. Um, Neither am I. I yeah, I don't like riding in the cities. I like my open space. I think part of adventure riding is to be alone um, in nature. Yeah. I'm a big animal lover, a bit of a hippie, really. But I, I just like that freedom of mind, freedom of space. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see the, the point in haggling with other people on these uh, busy roads. So, Understood. no, 
it wasn't it wasn't my big thing. Um, and also, I like doing tough roads, off roads. Of so course, I, I do that for you. Uh, now, did you have any apprehension uh, about starting this journey, uh, going through Africa, at all? Yeah. yeah um, luckily, I mean, because I was brought up in Southern Africa and Kenya, I, I kind of know the culture there. Okay. So I was less apprehensive than the second one, which we'll talk about with South America, um, because I knew the people. But um, it's uh, difficult with uh, fuel, a uh, lot of tough roads over there. So, yeah, apprehensive about the actual distance. But my philosophy is day by day, border by border, nothing lasts forever. Okay. And if you, if you stick with that, that's really helped me. Anytime I've had a crash or I'm going having some tough riding, um, or even if something great's happening, you know, you yeah. appreciate moment it's not going to last forever so yeah i stick with that maximum and it's got me through some tough times so what was your inspiration or what just hit you in the head that said you know what i think i'm going to ride around africa what 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 brought that on yeah well um basically from very very young i've been wanting to do it it was a combination i love motorbikes uh, i absolutely love traveling and obviously my heart was in africa uh i also raised uh, quite a little quite a bit of money for children so it was all this combined element. Um, it would just be the perfect thing for me. So I thought, okay, give it a go. So I worked for two years. I did construction work and I was teaching in the evening and uh, managed to save up enough to do the Africa trip because it's not cheap, Ted. The world's not cheap, as you no, know. I know. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And uh, yeah, so worked that one out. And I thought, okay, I'll write a book. And uh, I wrote a book and I sent it, I sent it to like 8,000 people and they wrote back and said, you're rubbish. <laughs> uh, they didn't say that they just said look uh, we're not in the market for yeah. this kind of book all the polite spiel so I realized I wasn't very good but uh, luckily I'd filmed it um, I had a camera mounted on the front of the bike which gave me a bit of hassle because uh, of the vibrations because it's a single cylinder sure so it looked like I had epilepsy when I was filming <laughs> it sometimes but um, on the other I also had a helmet cam okay. and then a handheld uh, a handheld Panasonic because as you know these days Technology is so great. You've got these tiny little cameras that, that you can hold yourself. Sure. So I just filmed it. Um, whatever happened each day, I had no idea. I've never filmed anything in my life. And I uh, sent it to Travel Channel, uh, who are owned by Discovery. And, uh, yeah, they had a look at it. And uh, five minutes later, they bought the whole series. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Bit of luck there. That, absolutely. So tell us about the Africa trip. How, how was that? It was unbelievable. It was it was beautiful. Um, I went through obviously the Muslim countries um, at the beginning: Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, which um, I'm not aware of at all. I'm more Southern African, uh, but there everyone was really welcoming. But one of the problems I had in Libya, just to keep money down, is that they uh, charge you. A, you have to take a guide with you. So they have a Mercedes, and this guy's driving like Michael Schumacher, and uh, I've got to keep up, and. Uh, yeah, it costs $100 a day oh. to have the guide. So what I did was um, I went to a little cafe with him and I went to use the toilet and I, I managed to squeeze out the window, of the, the top window <laughs> of the toilet and I disappeared on my bike. And then when I got to, eventually got to the border, um, the Libyan border out, they said, where's your guide? And I just said, well, to tell you the truth, his mother's not, I'm sorry about this, his mother's not very well. Um, he stopped at the last village. Would you like me to take you there to to meet him? And they were like, "No, it's okay. You can go." <laughs> so I managed to wangle my way out of that, but I saved seven hundred dollars because it was another seven days riding. Wow! Um, wow. Through, through the desert, yeah, absolutely brilliant. 
I also went into the desert. Um, I went to a place called the Qatari Depression during that particular route, and uh, it's it's just nobody again. And I took loads of water and fuel, but I ran out of fuel, and uh, sat in the desert. And I thought, okay, cool. This is one of those stories you hear about. They're going to find me a little bit skinnier and not very alive. <laughs> but uh, I got, uh, as as happens, you know, like in London, New York, a camel turned up, uh, a guy on a camel, and uh, he said, "No worries, I'll uh, I'll go get you some some water." And uh, he disappeared. I stayed another night, and lo and behold, he turned up, and he turned up on a motorbike with a little boy of about five holding a ten-liter drum of, of fuel and some water for me. And then he saw me back to the main northern road out of Libya. So, hey, absolutely brilliant. Cool people all the way around. Wow. <laughs> That's a great... Uh, aside from that, uh, you had mentioned of a, of a little incident that you had uh, early, later on in the trip when you were in, going towards southern Africa. You want to tell us about that? Um, I presume we talk about the shooting. Yeah, uh, the shooting. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's not a good thing to happen, really. I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> I no. was... Um, I was on the border with Somalia and Kenya, uh, which is where they train uh, Somali pirates. And it's it a really cool road. But the border, the problem is at the border, you have to go at Africa time. So when they say the bus is at leaving, at, the bus is leaving at four in the morning, the convoy is leaving because you have to go by convoy. Oh. It's a 500 kilometer, 350 mile, 500 kilometer stretch of dirt. And they know, you know, that it's a little bit dodgy, but they took four or five hours trying to load goats onto the roof and etc etc and uh, I went to the army I said guys can I go and uh, they said yeah yeah you can go and 15 minutes later I got attacked uh, <laughs> so I walked into it Ted it, it was my fault you know yeah. Um, but yeah uh, three guys on a hill basically and uh, I waved to everybody everybody I go past because in Africa there's big smiles all over the place sure. and this guy just lifted up an AK-47 a Kalashnikov and uh, yeah, started shooting, took out the whole back wheel, um, the brake caliper exploded, went through my arm, fell off, broke through ribs. Um, but I was in, the, I guess it's adrenaline mode, you know, I got back up. The tire had rushed off down the road like a snake, it was just, just pinged straight off. So I ran off, on the, I rode off on the rim, went into the bush, uh, lay the bike down and then ran away from the bike and lay in the bush again. And yeah, waited, I think, well, all night, 15, 16 hours. And yeah, just to add insult to injury, literally, it started raining. So I wasn't a happy camper. No, I, I guess not. Yeah, but I mean, to cut a long story short, I walked uh, 15 miles or so, and I met this German priest who was really cool, but uh, unfortunately he called the army, and they turned up all drunk and wanted to go back and see where I got shot. So that was a lot a lot more scary than the original attack, in a way, because 40 <laughs> guys with guns waving them around, smelling of homebrew. Um, but I, they didn't shoot me, but they did show me someone else who got shot on the way back. They showed me a cross on the side of the road. Oh, dear. So this, yeah, they said this is a Chinese construction worker that uh, got shot through the head last week. And, um, yeah, three, three, four hundred people get killed on that road. So, um, yeah, the Kenyan press hide it, of course, because they got a lot of tourism. Of course, I can imagine, yeah. So, yeah, and who can blame them? So I didn't want to push anything. I didn't want to ruin their tourist industry. It was my own fault. I shouldn't have gone. They told me about the convoy. So, yeah. But, you know, Ted, these guys are not... They're terrorists. They're not normal people. Right. So the normal people were absolutely wonderful. So anyone listening to this thinking, oh, my God, I can't go there. It was my fault for going near the Somali border, and it was my fault for leaving without the convoy. Uh, I just didn't have any problems apart from that. Everyone was just super wonderful. Right.
right. Uh, now you went up the uh, the west coast there, Africa, along the Ivory Coast, and I, I imagine you had some interaction with, uh, well, of course, a lot of people, of course. And what about uh, wildlife? Yeah, absolutely fantastic wildlife. My favorite really was uh, you're not really allowed in national parks uh, with motorbikes for obvious reasons because you'll become the uh, lion's dinner. Right. Uh, but uh, I managed to get permission to go into some national parks and uh, one of the first people to do it. And what an experience. Eh? You're just riding on a motorbike. You're out there with the elements. You've got a giraffe crossing the road. You've got a rhino on your left. It's a different kind of safari. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a real great experience. Real great experience. That's wonderful. Now, you told me you actually at one point got uh, you got a little lost or you, you got on a road and you popped out in the middle of a camp somewhere. Um, remind me of this, Ted. I'm sorry. I can't remember exactly that one. Uh, you were, you got, <laughs> you, I had mentioned earlier, you got on this road and eventually it became the brush. Oh, you, were yes, hacking, of course. you were hacking I'm your so way sorry. through. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was thinking about another occasion in Ecuador. Yeah, this was one of my favorites. This was in the Congo. Um, now there's two Congos. People don't know there's a DRC and there's Congo. One is Kinshasa. One is Brazzaville. They are completely different. Okay. Kinshasa is a little bit lawless. Um, and they're one of the only uh, two capital cities to be on either side of a river, out of interest. They stare at each other, um, which is unusual. But they are completely opposite. And I decided to go through the dead center of the Congo. And uh, it was a place called Makela de Zombo, which if any, anyone's ever heard of it, let me know, because I think I'm the only one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good decision, but in a sense, really tough. I uh, ended up, the road just disappeared and became a sort of... Kind of like a bicycle track, so that was okay, but then um, my panniers were becoming a pain. I kept clipping them on lianas and uh, branches and coming off. So I donated my panniers to the jungle um, at that stage in the trip, and I carried on riding, and uh, it just the road disappeared. So I had to cut my way through with a machete. It was my fourth machete because they take them at every customs, every border. They're like, What are you doing with that huge knife? But they're very handy in Africa. And uh, cut my way through, uh, I think, 10, 10 hours, 10 Ks, something oh, like that. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, leave the bike, cut through, push again. But uh, the favorite bit was, yeah, t I came to a little clearing and these little grass huts, African huts. There were about three of those and like a, a little little area with a fence. And there was a guy sitting there on a, on a torn deck chair. And I rocked up through the bush and he just basically nearly fell off his chair. And yeah, I spoke to him. He was like, where did you come from? Matadi. I said, no, where's Matadi? I said, I came through Makela de Zombo. And he was like, no one's been here for four years. I was like, <laughs> I was super chuffed, super, super chuffed. But, oh, that's um, funny. Uh, yeah, it was. It was great. But the problem was there was no one around and it was just him. He, st he had his customs uniform on. It was very dirty, but he had his customs uniform on. And uh, he went to stamp my passport, but there was no chance because the stamp had dried up. Um, so in the end, uh, yeah, he, in the end, he just uh, wrote his name and said uh, Spencer Conway is allowed to cross the border. And I thought, no way is this going to work. Uh, but it did. So I don't know. You know, this was a few years back. I reckon he's probably still sitting there waiting for the next motorcycle adventure to come along. Well, maybe he got a new ink pad by now. Maybe he's got a new ink pad, yeah. Or he's changed jobs to somewhere where he, somewhere where he can see human beings. Yeah. <laughs> now, you went up through, uh, even further north, you went up through uh, uh, the same region that they used to run the Dakar Rally through. How was that? 
Yeah, that was thrilling for me, you know, because uh, Mauritania is a beautiful country. Um, and I wanted to ride a bit of the Dakar route. And I actually rode a bit of the Dakar route in South America as well. But I'll come to that. Um, stunning place, but it's 2,000 kilometers of desert. So you've got to be prepared. And there's just one main city, Nuadaba, which I went to. And uh, I pulled into the high street and four guys uh, came up to me, super friendly, uh, said, excuse me, picked up my bike, carried it up 15 stairs, took it into a hotel, stuffed it behind reception and said, come in. So I was like, well, what's going on here, boys? And they said, uh, well, to tell you the truth, Al-Qaeda um, are looking for foreigners. And they've been phoning the hotels, finding out where foreigners are going, where they're staying, where they're leaving to. So they said to me, you know, it's not really safe here. We've had a few kidnappings. And uh, they proceeded to sort me out with five-star meals and wow. uh, super, super friendly guys. And the next morning, uh, four o'clock in the morning, I needed to get some money, so I went to a cash machine, nothing. So I was a bit stuck, so I went back to the hotel. They lent me some money, and I said, you know, I'll pay you back at some point. They were like, don't worry. Managed to fill up with fuel and uh, headed off 5 o'clock in the morning from there. But uh, I think they were just being careful, you know, uh, really nice, being genuine. Because, no, I met people along the way, didn't have any problems. But a, a stunning ride, but no shade, of course, not a single tree to be seen. So you need to be prepared for those kind of things. Tell me about the uh, vehicle inspection that you had to get. I'll tell you what. Eh? Um, it was, a guy phoned me up because uh, in England uh, it's called an MOT, and it means that you, you just get your car checked before it's cleared to go on the road. So I had to put my bike in after the Kenya trip, and this guy phoned me up, and he said, Mr. Conway, I just want to say this because it's the first time I've ever been able to say it in my life, and I'm probably never going to say it again, but you failed the vehicle inspection test because there's a bullet hole in your swing arm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I actually went down there. I went down there to where they were doing it. It wasn't far from my home. So I, I went down there to have a chat with him and we were filming it and sticking our fingers in the hole and everything. I asked him if I could put a motorcycle sticker over it, over the hole, but he said, no, I'm sorry, we've seen it now. <laughs> uh, it'll comp Anyway, it would have compromised the strength of the swing arm and Probably would have snapped on another trip. So, yeah. But I think he enjoyed that. They also said that uh, various bugs and uh, sand were jumping out of the motorbike while they were fixing it. So, I imported a few illegal insects as well. <laughs> <laughs> How did the bike perform on that whole trip? Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, you see, the thing in in Africa, it's it's sand. Uh, obviously, it wears everything away. It's so abrasive. So, you know, you've got to clean off the bike when you go through the deserts. Obviously, your air filter, just blow it out. Uh, the chain, of course, cleaning. Just general maintenance every, every three days. Just make sure you, you just keep it up, like, like a sensible rider, really. Right. And, uh, yeah, no problems. Obviously, the bike doesn't like getting shot. Um, so I had, had a few problems with that. I had to get the, the brake calipers, the frame on my panniers. Everything was rebuilt by a, a Kenyan dude that helped me out. They let you use their workshops over there, which is great. Yeah, you just pay dollars and you can go in and, you know, health and safety over here in England, you wouldn't even be allowed over over the threshold. But in Africa, they, they really like it. And you, and you work together. And you know when you're working on mechanics with someone else, you build up a rapport. You know, it's uh, problem solving and you make friends like that. Yeah. But the bike was absolutely superb. And, uh, yeah, that particular trip, 55,345 kilometers, um, maybe 10, 15 flat tires. Uh, that was my biggest problem. So really? I'm, I'm a 
Uh, yeah, I'm a real expert. When it, it got so ridiculous that when the front tire went flat, I was just, yay, this is brilliant. <laughs> it's the back one. It's the back one that's the nightmare. Um, yeah, that you sit around for hours jumping up and down on it, trying to break the bead. But I learned a nice little trick. You just use your side stand of your motorbike. So you pull the motorbike up on its side, and then you pop the side stand down onto the edge of the tire, and it breaks the bead. Oh, there you so go. So you, you don't have to jump up and down on it like a monkey. So, yeah, I thought that was a great one. Did you have to replace uh, tires, or did you simply um, just use the same ones over and over? No, I fixed them. I mean, on one occasion, I had a, I had a, a, a tear in my tube. I've got tubes on, on that occasion, and it was probably five centimeters long. So all I did was I sewed it up with a needle and thread. Uh, like you would a, like you would a shirt wow. uh, along the length of the the cut, and then I put a small patch over that section, and then I put a bigger patch over the top, and it it held out. Um, I did on one occasion carry a tire, but I just thought this is ludicrous. You know, I've got this big tire sitting on the back. I do see a lot of adventure riders with tires. I firmly believe you don't need to carry tires with you. You can always make a plan. You can buy these Chinese tires. Yeah. Uh, you know, biscuit tires, which last, they'll get you to the next place. Let's put it that way. I just don't see the point in carrying one for 15,000 kilometers in case you'll need it once. So I, I made that decision to give up on that. Now, is it just a matter of picking the right line when you're going down these roads, paths, trails, so that to avoid any damage onto the tires? Yeah, no, absolutely. But the thing is, in Africa, there's a lot of debris coming off trucks and things like that. Oh, Petrol stations is also a problem. There's a lot of nails. There's a lot of bits of metal. So, you know, you go in, you get petrol, you drive out, you got a flat. Uh, but on the, on dirt roads, I mean, you get a lot of these hard red earth roads in Africa that have a lot of pointy stones sticking out of them. Um, and you know, it can just you can just hit it at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, bridges as well. Bridges always have a little lip to them. Um, you know, the things are not constructed in the same manner. So it's just a case of uh, getting getting to know the different road conditions, but right. you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. So did uh, Africa give you the expectations that you you thought you'd have? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I I didn't know West Africa because it was French, um, and uh, East Africa I know well. Mm -hmm. But I just found everybody super welcoming. The thing about bikes, Ted, I'm sure you know, if you've got a nice looking bike or an interesting looking bike. It's an immediate conversation starter. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you can go off, for a, you can go off for, for a call of nature in the bush and you come back and there's five little kids around it. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get them on the bike and uh, give them some shots. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great way of breaking the ice. It really is um, having a bike. If you're in a car, you're a lot more anonymous, aren't you? Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's, you obviously know that famous quote, uh, if you're on a motorbike, you're in a film. But if you're in a car, you're watching the film. Yeah, uh, it's so true. Good. It is so true because you've got the sights, the sounds, the smells. You're dealing with the road conditions. You can hear the bike. I mean, you get to know the bike so well mm -hmm. that you turn it on. You're like, oh, something wrong today, whether it's the timing or whatever. And it just becomes part of you. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person to name my bike and <laughs> stroke it in the evenings and go, well done. But, but I'm proud of it now. I'm proud of it. <laughs> Maybe you should start. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the big question everybody's going to be wanting to know is what you do about food and your, your lodging? Yeah, I, I, I do everything on a budget. Uh, everyone, I think, will be aware of Long Way Down. Um, yes. The uh, Ewan McGregor show, yeah. So the whole idea sprung from their program. Okay. was to do it the absolute opposite. 
So to do it on a boat, and I didn't have any choice, so don't forget, I'm just a normal guy. I don't have Hollywood millions. Um, so it was to do it on a budget, uh, to do it rough, to do it camping, and to do it solo. Um, I don't have the money for psychologists and uh, doctors and mechanics and support trucks. And, and I, I wouldn't have taken them anyway because that's what I love. So the McGregor show was fantastic, but it was completely different. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I ate, uh, I caught chickens. Uh, I caught snakes, um, uh, these things called hyraxes. It's kind of like a rabbit, a weird-looking rabbit thing. Um, and they've got cane rats, which don't sound so nice. They're not really rats. So, yeah, I ate where I could. Um, but to be absolutely honest, my main nutrient was sardines. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, Sorry, I, 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 I'm, I'm a sardine. Showed me a can of sardines. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a sardine fan myself. So. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just a, it's a real quick way of getting nutrition and salt, you sure, know, and yeah. omega three, and it's got so much flavor. So uh, Africa, you can get bread everywhere. So you know, a little bit of bread, a bit of sardine, and my other big thing I take everywhere is chili sauce. Of course, how can yep, you go anywhere without chili sauce? No, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I do, I do on occasions get a bad stomach from it because I, I tend to have probably two, three cans of sardines a day, uh, <laughs> almost, every, almost every day. So, yeah, not much chance of picking up women with uh, fish breath. No, yeah, got... that's kind of a turn off right there. How many cans <laughs> How many cans of sardines did you travel with for the Africa uh, trip? Okay, well, funnily enough, uh, when I was in the Congo, I stayed with a, a, a Congolese lady. And she had an American husband, and he spotted me in the street, what you're doing here, etc. And they, they put me up for a couple of days, and uh, I packed up. And then when I was leaving, I went to pick up my rucksack, which goes on my front. Uh, I never put any rucksacks on my back because uh, it's easier to steal. Oh, sure. And, uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't hardly lift my rucksack. She put 22, 22 cans <laughs> of sardines. So I had to say to her, hey, Grace, you know, this is really nice of you, but I'm, I'm on a motorbike. I'm not in the truck. So, um, yeah, I, I, I left a few of them, and then uh, I, gave, I gave them to kids in the street as I was going. But uh, I normally carry at least three, three cans with me all the time. And that gets you, and are sardines readily available? Yeah, actually, the weird thing is, in tiny little bush towns where there might be one little kiosk with just a piece of wood as a counter, they've always got sardines and they've always got corned beef. And I'm a fan of that, too. Well, there you go. So, yeah, I didn't have any problems with that. Um, uh, African food is great, too. I mean, uh, you get a lot of steaks. You get a lot of meat, and it's, it's quite cheap. And I'm not a vegetarian, so I, I did okay. And oh, camping, you just, you, camping, you just uh, set up. You, you just get into a routine. Um, four o'clock, you know, you, you find a place uh, secure. Uh, if I didn't feel super secure, I didn't put the tent up because right. uh, I made the mistake of buying a neon blue tent, which you could see from 50 kilometers <laughs> away. I wouldn't do that again. It would be green next time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you set up tent. You make sure everything's organized before dark. Um, and then you uh, barbecue your sardines. So you got hot ones instead of cold. <laughs> so... Aside from the uh, the rare uh, a moment where someone would invite you in to stay in their home, you camped pretty much all the time. Yes, I camped for 267 nights in one year. So it's uh, pretty much most of the time. Um, how, was the, I, I, how was the I weather was with that? Down. The weather was fine. You know, in one year, I had three days of rain. So That's it, really? 
Yeah, I, I timed it well because I kind of knew that I knew the climate around, so I knew if I left in England in November, headed down the east coast, I'd be hitting summer all the way around if I timed it right. So, yeah, I didn't need any any wet weather gear, and also it's warm there, so sometimes you like the rain. Yeah, it's true. Excellent. Uh, now let's talk about uh, South America. Sure, absolutely. Did you go right to South America from Africa, or did you? Was there a pause in between? Yeah, no, there was a pause in between because uh, I obviously I went back and I uh, wasn't sure what was going to happen, but got the program sold and then uh, decided that South America was going to be the next one. So, um, yeah, ended up doing the whole of South America. I started in Bogota in Colombia, and uh, I went to uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Brazil, Suriname, Guyana, French Guyana, Venezuela. Um, so, yeah, all 13 countries. Uh, which is not quite a circumnavigation because a couple of them are inland, but I just thought, oh, well, if yeah. it's 11, yeah. I may as well go to all 13. Um, ended up, yeah, doing uh, 58,013 kilometers, which is longer than the Africa trip, and people are going to be wondering why, so maybe I should tell you. Yeah, you're going to get yeah. into that very soon. Well, you, well yeah, to many people, South America is somewhat of an enigma because we don't really know a lot about it except from what we may hear on the news, how unsafe it is and all that, but... You actually did you you obviously learned a lot about it before you even left, and um, actually that... not not at all. No, I, I, <laughs> no, I didn't look up anything. I, I don't do that. Um, I I prefer to go with an open mind. Um, it's the same thing you're saying about the dangers and that sort of thing. I I don't believe in reading foreign office websites and warnings right. on the internet because. Uh, you know, when we when we spoke privately, I said, uh, you just won't go anywhere. You just yeah. won't go anywhere. Uh, you, the scaremongers out there. So, I mean, you get cliches like Colombia. All people think about is cocaine and Pablo Escobar. But every country's got more yeah. than that to them, you know. So I, I wiped that aside. I did have more worries than Africa. I've got to be honest. Because really? I was not familiar with the culture. I was not fam- I hadn't met many South Americans, whereas I lived in Africa for 20 years. But it was wildly beyond my expectations. Uh, everyone was just wonderfully helpful. And hey, really lively people, really lively, especially the Brazilians. <laughs> and, and you did, and again, here in South, in South America, you did, you camped as you did in Africa. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, I did. Yeah. Now, did that um, offer any different challenges than you had in Africa? Um, no, but you, you follow the same sort of routine. You just make sure your tent's uh, zipped up all the time until you're ready to dive into it. And then you zip it up again really quickly <laughs> and uh, maybe spray like, you know, uh, repellent all over yourself, all over the tent. Uh, so, you know, for nasties. I mean, of course, I got spider bites, uh, various other things. I got nailed by a bullet tent, actually, Ted, which is the highest I've ever jumped in my life. It's... Uh, if anyone wants to Google it, it is supposed to be the most painful bite on Earth, apart from a certain scorpion. And I don't want to meet that scorpion, I can tell you. Because uh, I was having a, a wee by the side of the road, and uh, this bullet ant bit me on the back. And I've just never felt anything like it. It was like having sort of 20 cigarette burns on your back. And wow. it, your body just heats up. I, I swelled up within 20 seconds. And, uh, yeah, I rode. I just carried on riding. But it, it went. Within within two days, it was gone. But, uh, yeah, so the, the similar sort of things. You've got to worry about animals. got to worry about insects. But safety, I felt a lot more relaxed in South America. No kidding. But having said, 
Yeah, yeah, I did. But having said that, it's more difficult to find campsites because in Chile, Argentina, they're they're quite organized countries and they've they've got designated areas where, you know, things are fenced off and I don't want to go into private property because I don't believe in that. Right. Um, so if I saw a farmer, I would ask. Uh, I did occasionally go to uh, designated campsites, but it's not my thing. I like to wake up, open the tent, and you've picked your own view and you've yeah. got nature you know, right away. So, yeah, no, I, I was good about it, good about it, yeah. How was going through Peru and uh, Chile? Yeah, Chile, Chile is an amazing place. Uh, it's, it's got a very famous road that bikers know called the Carretera Astral. Now, what this does is it, it crosses the Andes and it goes back and forth between Chile and Argentina. Okay. And you need to really go through four or five borders, so you're sw swapping between countries. But the thing about it is it's a, a combined road. It's got some tarp and it's got some nice off-roading. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a good combination for all types of riders. But it's got these crystal clear blue lakes on either side of you. And uh, the mountains, of course, with snow-capped peaks and uh, condors and, you know, the works or all the animals you can imagine from South America. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful place. But one, one uh, animal that I didn't enjoy, one insect I didn't enjoy was a... A bee that decided to drink from my Pepsi Cola can at the same time as me. Oh, and, uh, yeah, and uh, it it stung me on the on the lip, uh, which wouldn't have been a problem. I mean, I did look like Elephant Man, but uh, the big problem is that I I suffer from anaphylactic shock. Uh, I actually got bitten in the Seychelles, and I had to be flown by helicopter. Um, that's how serious it is. I have about twenty minutes to live. Oh, so I, I carry an EpiPen and an adrenaline pen, so I inject myself in, in, in the, the leg, and within 10 minutes it's okay. But uh, the idiot that I am, I didn't have it. So I said to Kathy, the, my girlfriend and the camera woman, I said, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, I'm just going to jump in the tent. So I, I got in the tent, and she just thought, oh, I better go check on him. And uh, yeah, she, she turned up, and I was unconscious. So I was told all about this afterwards, obviously, because I was unconscious. These two guys, Chilean guys, dragged me by my feet, pulled me out, threw me into the back of a pickup, and uh, I stopped breathing on the way to hospital for, oh, about, for about 25 seconds, 30 seconds, they told me. And then uh, it was four minutes to the, ho to the hospital, which was just pure luck. Right. Um, and yeah, they, they sorted me out. So now I'd... Uh, now I carry the adrenaline pen. Uh, yeah. There's no point dying twice, is there? No, no. And uh, yeah. always cover your Pepsi can. Always cover your Pepsi can. <laughs> Actually, I, I should have learned that from Nigeria because everybody does cover their, their drinks with a coaster. Yeah. Uh, instead of having a coaster on the bottom, they put it on the top. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> was there any part of uh, South America that w was challenging to you? Um, yeah. I, I had a big problem with altitude. Uh, I've never really been at altitude. I didn't face that in Africa, you see, because they don't really have massive mountain ranges. Right. Whereas in Peru, you're talking 5,023 meters. I went up Tungarahura volcano, and um, I was I was trying to get over to uh, Death Road in Bolivia, and you've got to climb over 5,000 meters there. And I was riding up, and I got a big slap on the back of my helmet, and my girlfriend, uh, camera woman, said, "You're driving really badly." So I said, "What are you talking about?" said, I think there's something wrong with you. So we got off the bike. We had a little altercation. And I thought, now we're going to carry on. And then I was putting my gloves on. And I found it took me like a minute. And I thought, hey, there is something wrong with me. Okay, I had the headache. 
and um, you know breathing problems. It's like it's like you're trying to breathe through syrup or something. But that's wow. that does that doesn't worry me. What worried me was riding dangerously. Right. So we turned around and uh, we went back, and we tried it again the next day, and I failed again. So on the third day, um, you can cut this out if people are morally against it, but a guy gave me coca leaves, um, <laughs> and he said, chew, chew these, and then he made me some coca tea, and uh, I sailed over that mountain. Uh, not high, but uh, <laughs> it clears the airways. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got, I got over. So it works. It works at altitude. I mean, the, the uh, indigenous Indians have been using it at altitude for many, many generations not just for energy, but also to help with altitude sickness. So if anybody knows, they know. I, I prefer doing that than taking some uh, tablet that they've invented in England, in England that I don't even know what it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, sorry about that, guys, if yeah. you're against it. It got me over the mountains. you got to do what you got to do, right? Indeed. You know, it's funny, as I was watching Top Gear one, uh, one time, I'm sure you're familiar with Top Gear, and the hosts, were, the hosts were, they were actually in the, uh, pretty much the same region you were. And they were huh? they were taking Viagra to get over the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Yeah, but, but you have to consider I was with my girlfriend, so I don't think we would have got much uh, motorbike riding done. So now, did you stash a whole bunch of cocoa leaves for that remainder of that trip? <laughs> no, I, I I knew that it was uh, I knew it was legal. Um, so I I just you know I, I didn't worry about having it on me, but I I got some more when we went over the Andes again. Because when you're circumnavigating South America, you will have to go over the Andes four or five times because the mountain chain runs, as you know, from north to south. Sure. So it's always going to be a time when you go over. I think I crossed it five or six times. Wow. So uh, for, our, for our listeners, yeah. now you said 5,000 meters. Yes. That's the equivalent of 16,000 feet. It is. It's as tall as Mount Kilimanjaro. It's as tall as quite a, quite a few mountain that, that people challenge themselves for and you must be, obviously be aware that uh, mountain climbers are going at a much slower rate sure they're acclimatizing they're intelligent they're not like me <laughs> they stop at different camps and uh, acclimatize and then they carry on and like an idiot uh, the one in ecuador was funny though because i went from zero to 5023 meters in about two hours oh my so, god really yeah yeah i was sick as a pig and uh, i thought okay well i've got a film i've got a film so I did a bit of filming, and then I heard down in the valley, I heard this music playing, because they play music all day, all night. It's okay. brilliant. It's really lively. I heard this music playing down in the valley. I was the only one there. Did my filming, went down, and when I got to the village, they were like, where have you been? I said, well, I went up Tungarahura, and they said, didn't you hear the alarm? It's getting active at the moment. So that was an alarm that was making the, that was uh, to warn people not to go on the volcano. So there I was. <laughs> With altitude sickness at the top of the volcano, but luckily uh, of, an, hold on, of, of an active volcano. Yes, it's a, it is a fully active volcano, Tungarahura. Yes. Wow. Did you camp at elevation also? Yes, I did. I camped at Tungarahura at four thousand four hundred meters, <laughs> and I slept for probably fifteen seconds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was freezing cold. You got that pounding headache. Yeah. Uh, but it was such an experience because when I opened my tent in the morning, I had that classic shape, you know, that perfect V shape in, with the blue sky behind it and like a white section on the top, like a cake. Just oh, wow. like when you're a child, how you imagine a volcano to look like. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was what an experience. So wow. it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Now, the highest I've ever been uh, on a mountain was uh, nearly 12,000 feet. 
Which is high too. Right. Now I at that altitude what I what I can tell my experience is it, normal breathing is okay, but the moment you exert yourself, I mean walking or anything, there's no air. That's exactly it. And you end up taking uh, tiny small steps like your yes. great grandfather did. Yeah. But you know, I was in La Paz, which is the highest um, the highest capital in the world, and I was walking up to my room from a shop and it was a very steep road and I couldn't breathe at all and I thought oh my god I'm so unfit and just uh, as happens the uh, La Paz Marathon was on so 500 people went running past me looking as healthy as could be I was like you guys they can rub it in but they were brought up there they're acclimatized you've got to get used to it Now, did you have uh, any difficulties in any of the South American countries? I had difficulty. I had no difficulties with people, really. Uh, my main problems were, were with the terrain. Uh, like I said to you, altitude. I also had a problem in the Salar de Uni. Um, I was in the Salt Flats, uh, which is, uh, I think, 12,500 square kilometers, 100 times bigger than Bonneville. Wow. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area. And what, what it is, it, it's uh, actually it's an ancient lake. And it's been covered by salt. And the salt is between 10 centimeters thick and a meter thick. So there are dodgy areas. There are dodgy areas where you can go through. But what they have is from north to south, they have a... It's not a road, isn't it? There are no roads. But you can see where vehicles have been on the salt. So that's basically people follow that. So I thought, okay, well, I need to get completely off of here. And I can film some spectacular scenery. Because what happens is the volcanoes from underneath the lake pop through uh, the ice so that they are they are called islands so you have these islands that are sticking out of the ice and this is the only way you can get your bearings so I rode off and um, I had a blowout and it wasn't just a blowout the whole tire came off uh, I've got no idea how that happened but uh, yeah fish tailed all over the place came off and um, tried to fix it but the compressor was gone so uh, I took everything off again the panniers everything and I drove at five five kilometers an hour because I had no water. I waited six or seven hours. And just to give you an idea of how big this place is, Ted, when I did eventually find some people, I asked these Bolivian guides to come and help me locate my stuff because I don't travel with a GPS. I couldn't mark where it was. Wow. And it took them three days. Three days three to find my days? Thing. And one of them had worked there for 30 years. And... Uh, Yep, we went out the first two days, and then on the third day, we just saw this little blob in the distance, and these guys were so great. They got so excited. We jumped out of the truck. We were all hugging each other. They were jumping in the air, and this was just for my gear, you know, and they didn't want any money. They just, ah, oh, they were just such cool people. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, yeah, slight problem there, but if, if uh, any biker listening out there, it's an iconic place to go to, Ted. They've got this thing called the one-minute test, which you must never do. But it's you ride in the cellar with your eyes closed, and you count to 60. Uh, the reason for this is because there is absolutely nothing in the way. And uh, once you're up to a certain speed, the bike does it on its own. But these are one of the little little uh, tricks that people do. But I don't recommend that to anyone. I didn't do that. Uh, I think people tend to get a bit carried away because there's no vehicles there. There's yeah. so much space. And you can try and break the land speed record if you want. But... Just don't do it because I came off and I don't know how I came off. So wow. yeah, take it easy and just enjoy it there. So you did a portion of the uh, Dakar Rally down there in South America. 
I did. I did the uh, I did the Uyuni to Tapiza. That's actually from the Salt Lakes because uh, they ride across the Salt Lakes as well. Right. But they've got a section that goes down to a place called Tapiza, which is a sand road. And uh, sand roads are tough. Uh, yeah. you've, you've got to keep an even throttle. You mustn't dump your clutch. Uh, you, you mustn't use your front brake ever. You must stand up. You must lean back. Keep everything even. And you'll still come off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I came off about 15, 20 times on that road. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic ride. And it's good for me because I'm entering the Dakar. I'm going to be the oldest person in the Dakar. <laughs> Are you really? Yes, yes, I'm entering in 2021. No kidding, so, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I was going to announce it on my website, but I've told you first, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's an expensive deal, but Yamaha are building me a, a WR450 okay. um, from scratch, and it looks like I've got sponsorship for my support truck, so the next thing for me to do is just to get into the gym, uh, get fit, and then I'm going to go to Morocco and do some uh, desert riding just to improve it. And then I'm going to be 51, so I'm going to be the oldest person to to do the Dakar. Now, are you doing uh, this a, with a, is this a team that you're doing, or is this solo? Solo. Wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah as, as one of the entrants. So I, I, you know, I don't care if I come last. Okay, let's say second last. I just, <laughs> I just want to, I just want to finish. I just yeah. want to finish. Um, you know, I, I know I'm not a, a very good rider. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a speed rider. Right. So I'm, I'm just going to try and get round. Hey, slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, okay. Now, you made it down to uh, Tierra del Fuego, correct? Yeah, I did. Um, it's it's an iconic place. Ushuaia, obviously. Everyone wants to go there. But I have a little a little tip for everybody. Don't just stop in Ushuaia. A lot of people do that. They get to Ushuaia, and they think, oh, well, what's so special about this? You have to go 25 kilometers further south. There's a little road that goes through a national park, okay. and it takes even further south. And it's beautiful. So that was the highlight for me because I also got to Ushuaia and okay, it's a nice place, but I thought, you know, done it. But uh, let's go yeah, a little further. Just go a little bit further. So once again, anyone, anyone else listening there, you'll have a beautiful little ride through that national park there. Well, how was the how was the weather and the climate and all that down that far south? Okay, I, really, the the biggest danger was Patag Patagonia. Um, which is before you get into that particular area, but you're getting south there. Patagonia is completely flat, uh, so consequently there is absolutely nothing to stop the wind. Oh. So it is a massive, massive challenge on a bike. Uh, you're, you're basically leaning sideways, and uh, the wind changes direction so quickly that suddenly you're flipped in the other direction. And I know at least 15 people that have come off on that road. It is just so powerful. And they have these mega trucks as well. And you know, when you get into the slipstream of a truck, it feels like you're in the, you know, in the calm. Yeah. But as soon as that goes, you're suddenly jolted again. Yeah. So uh, you've got to keep up that certain speed to keep the forward momentum. But your mind is telling you, no, you must go two miles an hour. <laughs> but that doesn't work. So you just, you just got to keep it steady. But yeah, that was tough. It was tough to get down there. But uh, one, uh, once again, a very beautiful place. Uh, came across 20, 25, 250,000 penguins in the desert. Really? So that was a, yeah, wow, that yeah, yeah. been a sight to see. It's the weirdest thing. It, it just sticks in my memory because I always think of penguins sitting on an iceberg or next to the sea. Yeah. But they dig these little holes um, under the scrub. They have these little bushes, and they just they bury themselves in the sand. 
And then in the morning, they, they spend the whole morning walking the two, three kilometers to the water. They have a wash and then they spend the whole afternoon walking back. <laughs> it seems kind of it's senseless. Right? Cool. Yeah, uh, you know, don't like... be rude about penguins. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's a bit senseless. senseless. Yeah. But uh, oh, hey. just to, to film it, and uh, I was so lucky because the guy who was running the, the national park, he allowed me to stay overnight. So right. I was the only person, the only person in the park because it closes at six. Okay. So the next morning, four in the morning, hop us four. Sun starts coming up. You've got uh, armadillos fighting with penguins. You've got alpacas. You've got llamas. You've got the works. And we had these two skunks. Um, uh, obviously, they, they, they got spooked by them a little bit, and they ran into this tiny little hole, but they couldn't fit. So we had both their asses sticking out and both their tails sticking out. But they thought they were hidden. They thought they were hidden. But, yeah, you, get, you have these amazing wildlife experiences um, and snakes, of course, as yeah. well. We had, a, we had a very close one. I stopped by the side of the road. In, um, it was in Colombia. And uh, I saw in the grass a giant cane toad sort of came up in the air as though it was almost flying. And it was a snake had it in its mouth. And it was one meter from where I was. But, uh, yeah, luckily I managed to catch him. So I caught him and uh, held him up and I filmed that. Uh, because uh, I'm really into my wildlife, so yeah, hopefully that'll show up on my on my TV series. Wow, how was uh how was Brazil? Brazil's an amazing country. Um, I don't know if people are aware, but if you take every single country in South America, it fits in Brazil. So Brazil is half the continent. That is uh, yeah, amazing. So it's it's one hell of a trip. Uh, the South is is mainly uh, sugarcane. So it's just trekking through, trekking through. I didn't go to Rio because I don't do the tourist bit. Yeah. And then I hit, I hit the coastal areas. But the highlight for me was uh, going through the Amazon, um, through Belém, which is the gateway to the Amazon. It's a city which is so amazing because it, before the city was built, it was mango. It was a mango jungle, basically. Okay. And the planners decided that they were going to leave it as full of mangoes as they possibly could. So it's like no other city in the world. It's got mango trees four or five stories high all the way down all the streets. And it creates this beautiful smell throughout the whole city of mangoes. And obviously it makes it quite a green city. And yeah. then that's the one that you catch the ferry to go um, across the mouth of the Amazon. And if you consider it took us 48 hours on a boat, that's how wide the mouth of the Amazon is. So that was a real trip. Wow, so I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at Street View right now on uh, Google Maps. I'm looking at Street View, and by golly, there's a bunch of mango trees everywhere. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable place. Unbelievable place. And also, the, there's a section which is great that bikers should know about called Ghost Road. I don't know if you've heard of it, Ted. It, it runs from um, basically from Guyana, the tiny country Guyana, all the way through the Amazon to Boa Vista and back into Peru. And it's called the Ghost Road because nobody uses it. It was built by uh, Brazilian soldiers in 1974, okay. but uh, they just left it. So the jungle is taking it over. It's got about 25 rickety bridges, you know, the ones that we love that are just uh, oh, yeah. whole, basically. Um, actually, a friend of mine, Simon Thomas, a couple of years back, he's an adventure rider as well. He fell through one of these bridges and broke his neck. Ooh. And Yeah, and he was with his wife. And the bike conked out, and she actually towed his bike out of there. Um, and he, they found out when he got back that he had a broken neck. But he's fully recovered from it. He wasn't oh, paralyzed. And they'd warned me about that road. 
um, it's 800 kilometers of dirt and what used to be asphalt. But because it hasn't been touched since 74, you've got potholes, you know, your whole bike can go inside. So, yeah, thrilling ride. It's Thrill, 800 thrilling kilometers ride. long? 800, 800 kilometers long. Right through the jungle. Right through the jungle and only one place to stay, and that was with the army. Uh, they had one, one army outpost. So luckily I was on there. But this was all part of a 12,000-kilometer detour I had to make, Ted. Yeah, well, tell us about that detour. Well, I went to Venezuela, uh, which is the place I'm most proud of and I think the place I love the most. But it's the border has been closed for three years, since 2014. The only border that's opened is the southern border, Boa Vista. Um, and I managed to get in there, and I went through the center of... Uh, obviously, everybody told me, you go to Venezuela, within a day you'll be naked, within two days you'll be shot. You know, And it was like that, everybody I spoke to. And funnily enough, in Venezuela, you'd go to a town and they'd go, listen, listen, Spencer, we are really, really nice here, but if you go to the next town, they're really dangerous. And you go to the next town and they say the same thing about the town. <laughs> so it was like a follow-on effect. But they all thought their place was the safest. And I had, I had no problems there. Um, but when I got to the western border, which is San Cristobal, Cucuta, uh, mm -hmm. Going into Colombia, I was 235 kilometers from completing my circumnavigation, and I couldn't get out. They only have foot passengers because, unfortunately, they have 35,000 people a day uh, trying to get out of Venezuela. Really? Of, yeah, yeah. They've they've got no they've got no money at the moment. I mean, I'd managed to get a bit of money, but it filled the whole suitcase, and all I could buy was a coke and a loaf of bread. So they're struggling. They're really struggling. Um, I don't want to go into politics, but uh, the people are staying strong. Petrol, for example, is free, but you've got a queue for eight hours. Oh. So you have this you have this weird setup where everyone's accepting it. So what they do is they bring out the beers, they have barbecue, which near a petrol station, <laughs> beers and a barbecue not very safe. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but they they make it they make an occasion of it. You know the the, the queue is going a mile, two miles down the road. So they all just get chatting. They even get days off work so that they can get petrol. And when I turned up, I got my petrol, and he said, okay, you can go. I was like, how much? He was like, no, petrol's free. So they've got these weird, weird setup there. It's got its problems, but I loved it. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. So then I came to the border, and um, they said, okay, look, speak to the head of the army, which I did. I spent three weeks, almost, almost three weeks, and I got out. I managed to get out with my bike. Uh, the Venezuelans cleared me, and then I got to uh, the Colombian side, and they said no. So I said, listen, man, can I at least come into Colombia on foot and get myself a tire? So they said, yep, okay. This was one, one security. But I went and bought the tire on the way back. I covered it in water, and then I rolled it in the mud uh, so, so that if it was a different customs office, I could say, no, this is an old tire. It's one of my friend's tires. I walked across the bridge. They said, no, you're not allowed to import goods here. Uh, unless you got the permit. So I was quite peed off about that. So I, they sent me back, but then I met a guy with one leg. And uh, he, he said he was a smuggler. And he, he said he'd uh, take my, my uh, tire, he'd go underneath the bridge, he'd go through the river, he'd go across the jungle, and he'd come out the other side. So he stuck it over his neck, and he hopped across uh, through the jungle and came out the other side waving to me. So I had a one-legged smuggler helping me out, which <laughs> was really cool. How did you finally get out of Venezuela? Yeah, well, uh, I had to give up eventually. So I retraced my steps all the way through Venezuela. And that's when I went on that ghost road, uh, 12,500 k's detour. 
and back in through Peru again and through Ecuador and then back into Colombia uh, where I finished. So no a, a really, really crazy trip. Yeah, it added another quarter if you think about it because I did 58,000 but uh, 12,500 of it was a detour. So I'm just wondering if you know anybody or if there's anyone out there that's done a longer detour than that. <laughs> <laughs> I can honestly say that I have not. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. Yeah, it took, took two months. But um, two wouldn't months. have had the experience we had. Um, this is true. You know, yeah. With nature and uh, the beauty of the Amazon. So, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Now, you, did, you camped as well in South America. Yeah, I did. Uh, not a problem there, but uh, on one occasion, I knew it had happened to me. Uh, I uh, heard, and it's not really called a herd, but it's all I can think of, a herd of mosquitoes decided to attack me. Oh, and no. um, Yeah, I think I had almost a couple of pints of blood stolen, and uh, I ended up with malaria. <laughs> so that was, uh, I got it in Venezuela, but it hit me in the Amazon. It hit me when I was going through the Amazon. But uh, Kathy, uh, who's very tough, uh, she just kept telling me, look, I need a real man. I don't need a wimp. There's nothing wrong with you. You've just got flu. All men are like this. So I rode for 14 days with malaria, uh, trying to be the hard nut, and then I collapsed in the street and had a fit. And, uh, yeah, they took me off to hospital, and I had malaria. So that, that was okay. It, just three days in hospital, and they sorted me out quickly. And then uh, Kathy collapsed with uh, blood poisoning, and she was in hospital for a month. Oh, yeah, in Colombia. So, um, luckily, I mean, we had insurance. It cost seven thousand U.S. dollars to get us both better. So oh, it's another geez. little warning. It's another little warning for people. You must have health insurance, even if you're going on a short trip, because you can do a week somewhere and suddenly end up with something, and you're yeah. going to be out of pocket. It's going to ruin your life. Right. So um, I, that's. I think that's a really, really, really vital thing to have. Now, were you uh, doing the whole sardine thing? Oh, yes, of course. South America also big on sardines. Um, and they also have um, arepas, which are it's kind of like bread. It's round. It's between bread and a pancake. And they're pretty tasty with sardines on them. Um, and, of course, guinea pig. Guinea pig is very popular. Okay. Uh, it looks really cool um, because it's a whole guinea pig, untouched. Uh, so he's got his legs hanging over the plate. He's got his head sticking over the plate. He's even got his teeth sticking out. So if you're a vegan or vegetarian, not really your cup of tea, but quite tasty. Um, I didn't eat a, no snakes on that occasion. Uh, I did in Africa, but uh, yeah, food's great as well. So yeah, didn't have a problem. Didn't have a problem. And beans. And beans. Beans, rice, and sardines. Yeah. Uh, now your 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 partner there did she in uh, indulge in the sardines and the beans and all that as well? Yeah, she's pretty open-minded to to the whole adventure. You know, you, this was a big difference between Africa. Is uh, when you're one when you're on your own, it's a whole different ball game. Uh, two of you, it's uh, the double the weight. Yes. You've got to get used to the riding, um, and also, it, it's great when I go to bike shows as well because you often get guys with their wives or you get women riders, and they tend to be ignored a bit. I mean, got to be honest. A little bit. So it's nice to ha it's nice to have Kathy there because the girls can say, "Hey, well, how was it on the back? Was he an idiot, or did you enjoy it, or how did it go with <laughs> the bad roads?" So she's got an input now that we didn't have before. So it made it into a completely different trip. And uh, also, you've, of course, you've got to have a very strong relationship. Of course. I understand, I understand that most people won't be doing a one-year, four-month trip because they can't. No. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a great test. And uh, I'm pleased to say that, we, yeah, we got on fine. 
and uh, she knows how to do most things on the bike now. Oh, does she does she ride herself? Oh yeah, no, she does ride, but she didn't ride on this trip. But she uh, she changed um, the bearings on the front forks, top and bottom end. Oh. She did all the chain adjustments. She's changed tires. She's done all the coolants and the oil changes, etc. So she's loving it. Um, and it's a nice way because I do a lot of bike shows um, when I'm in in between trips, and it's just nice to have the two of us there. It just gives a wider perspective for people who who are thinking about doing trips. So on the next trip. Is there going to be a plan for both of you to go on separate bikes? Uh, yeah, she's uh, she's been hinting about uh, XT250, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Because the problem is she's got to film, okay. and if she's on a bike, if she's on a bike, she can't film. She does a lot of filming from the back of the bike. So I suspect uh, if the series is a success and we head head on to the next one, uh, she'll probably still be on the back. Okay. Uh, as far as goes for your comparison between South America and Africa. Well, did you okay. did you have a favorite or was there any, what specific differences can you say between the two? Okay, the biggest difference from a riding point of view is that uh, South America is more challenging because of the constant turns and bends and mountains and altitude. So in one day you can go from minus two to forty degrees, um, and you've got to be prepared. So you've got to have the bike gear ready right, for that. Right. So um, the riding is very very different. Um, it's much easier in South America with fuel and parts. Um, it's a little bit more organized. Africa, you've got to be a little bit more level-headed. The riding is slightly more difficult in Africa. They've got tougher dirt roads. Okay. Um, okay. So, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's different aspects. And apart from the riding, people-wise, completely different. But, really? Uh, really? but welcoming, welcoming. I've, I've really got no complaints about, about any of them. I really think that... Everybody's cool, and if you, if you if you start off being polite, I think I think I, I might have spoken to you uh, at a, uh, another time where I said I think the most important thing is to respect the speed of life that other people have, and the manners that they have, and the culture that they have. Uh, for example, I I've seen it myself. People are in such a hurry in the modern world; they'll walk into a shop and go coffee, and you know that that won't work in South America and Africa. You've got to greet the person. Uh, so much so if you come up to a homestead where someone lives, you shout from the entrance. You don't just walk into their yard. Similarly, if you're stopped at a police roadblock or army or whatever, stop the bike, turn off the bike, get off the bike, take off your helmet, walk up to the guy with a big smile and hold your hand out. And that straight away just breaks the ice and they think, okay, well, this guy's got a little bit of respect. And even so much so as how are you, how's your family, you're enjoying this job, you know, that kind of thing, just making small talk. Sure. And, uh, sure. you know, they're only people, just like us. They might be in uniforms, but they're just people who are doing their job. So a bit of manners will get you a long, long way. How did the, overall, on the whole trip, how, how did people react to what you were doing? Um, yeah, people were very, very interested. I mean, it, it depends where you were. Argentina, uh, more more developed, so they're more used to seeing a few more bikes. Sure. Places like Bolivia, certain places we went, the children ran away from us. Um, but then they'd come back, you know. They'd come back, hide behind a tree, have a little look at you. And, uh, yeah, eventually you'd have a crowd of, you know, 50 people around you. But as I said, the bike breaks the ice. Um and uh, we're from South Africa also, so uh, that's that's quite unusual for people. Right. Uh, yeah. They haven't met many people from South Africa, so that also breaks the ice. 
I just think everybody's out for a normal. Everybody has got to have children. They got to pay their bills. They're worried about school. They're worried about everyday life. And so am I. You know. So we've all got the same goals and aspirations. We just want to have a decent life. And I don't think any of us really want to fight. No. So I just just stay positive. You know. Yeah. Now, were there any parts of either uh, South Africa and or Africa period and uh, South America? that was your favorite and you would love to do again? Sure. It's so difficult. Um, I, I, I like the really tough roads. So, I mean, I'd like to go, I'd like to go back to the Congo and maybe explore the jungle a bit more. Um, Venezuela, I'm waiting to see what happens. I'm also considering moving to Venezuela or Colombia. Really? Um, selling, yeah, selling my house here and being based from there, which means if I'm in Colombia, I can start my third circumnavigation from Colombia and have a base there. Uh, England is beautiful, but it's it's. I'm an outdoors person, and you've got nine months of cold, uh, yeah. and you can't do much riding. Uh, great people, but it's, it's, it's not quite the place for me. And also, it means we can start the next trip, go through the Darien Gap, and then uh, do Central America, uh, and then do uh, the USA and uh, Canada and Alaska. So mm-hmm. probably a two-year two-year trip on the next one. Oh, that's nice. Of course, and I'm coming to visit you. Excellent. I'll, I'll be waiting for you. Uh, <laughs> but you can also go back to the Congo and visit the guy at the shack to see if he got that new stamp. Exactly, and see if I can get it stamped again. Absolutely. <laughs> or a handwritten note. <laughs> or another handwritten note. So now both yeah, of these... I just, I just want to keep it going. Um, my, my ultimate aim, really, is I, I've done loads of research, Ted, and, and as you know these days, everybody's done everything. Uh, people have been around the world 15 times. Nick Sanders, seven times around the world. Fastest person around the world. Right. You know, someone walking around the world with a pancake on his head. I don't know. <laughs> whatever you think of. whatever you. Th- I, I mean, I know a guy that crawled, crawled on all fours from the south of England to the north of England. So, you know, people are trying to find things uh, out of the ordinary. Sure. But when I did my research, yes, people have been all over. And people have been down the side of one continent, but I haven't come across anybody who's actually circumnavigated every single continent. So for some strange reason, I set that as my goal. So I'm hoping within 10 years, I'll have done it all. Excellent. And of course, you'll have stories for us on that, I hope. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. No, I mean, I'd I'd love to come back on when I do the next one, if I'm successful. If I'm a failure, I'm going to hide my head in the sand. You'll never (laughs) see me again. No, nobody fails, but if if you fall short of your goal, at least you'll still have the experience of having attempted it. Yeah, this is true. But I'm I'm not a fan of failure, really. So let's just just hope it goes okay. I'm sure it will. Now, you both of these trips are, are featured or going to be featured on the Travel Channel. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, at the moment, it's uh, 122 countries, 35 different languages. Uh, that's Europe, uh, UK, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And now we're working on uh, the States, South America, Australia, and Canada. Okay. So um, that's I should know within a week. So I'll let you know exactly where the territories are and uh, where it's going to come out. All right. But, um, All right. Yeah. And I'll I'll send you a DVD, Ted, because oh, I know okay. you're busy. Oh. You might, you might miss the programs. Yeah. Well, now you have now. Tell us about the books. I understand there's a book and there's a whole bunch of videos on your website as well. Yeah, no, I've got uh, I've got an extended video of uh, my Africa trip, and at the moment we're putting together the South America trip. I haven't given up on writing um, <laughs> my my Africa book. I'm going to try again my South America book. Try and do them together. Okay. Uh, 
But uh, we'll see how it goes. For me, the most important thing is uh, hopefully to inspire people to travel and to be open-minded and uh, just, you know, get themselves involved in international understanding. Because uh, sitting at home, even if you're planning a one-week trip or a, a weekend trip, it's adventure. It's adventure. As long as you're out of your comfort zone that you know. You know, people, I, I'm not, I know people can't do what I'm doing. I, I feel very privileged. But everyone's got a life. They've got families. They've got jobs. They've got mortgages. They've got money. Sure. So I feel very privileged. But what I'd say is, if you're going to Morocco for five days, just live the hell out of it and, and, and enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Because that's what adventure is. So one question I didn't ask you, and I wanted to touch on this before we close out. How okay. many hours per day did you ride? Uh, I would say probably only three or four hours a day, Ted, because really? we were yeah, because we're filming, so you're you're stopping and you're setting up shots, and uh, you know you have to ride by, ride back, get a shot from the mountain, yeah. get that kind of thing. And uh, I'm a firm believer in taking things slowly if you have the opportunity. Of course, I understand that some people are are, are on a schedule, but, but I, I I just think I might never ever ever see this road again. Right. So right. I. Rushing past at 100 kilometers an hour, the only thing that I'm focusing on is the road. And number one, it becomes more dangerous because you've got no idea what the other drivers or riders are going to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, number two, we wanted to get some footage. So yeah, three, four hours. Uh, on occasions, we, we did, you know, um, longer trip. Like if you're going over a mountain pass and it's getting dark, you, we, we did some 10 hour days. But uh, safety is always an issue for me. I prefer to be a snail. I understand. I understand. What was the what was the cutoff time? Uh, like, what point during the day you said, "Okay, we're done for the day. Let's set up the tent." Yeah, four o'clock. Four o'clock would be the time because it uh, the sun sets very very rapidly, and by six, you know, within half an hour, it's dark. So I just wanted to have the tent set up, um, have my sardines out on the on the on the log or whatever, and and be prepared. <laughs> make sure I knew my surroundings. Uh, I felt comfortable with it. I mean, on occasions I did pack up and and uh, move on and pick another spot but you you just you just play it by ear and see how, how things right. feel right but I, I love the solitude of it for me camping was a bonus it's not a negative thing and it's cheap and it's cheap it's my favorite price it's free <laughs> <laughs> all right so all total how long were you on the road and how many miles did you travel and how many countries did you see all total Okay, I, it was in total 113,000 uh, kilometers, and it was 34 countries in Africa and 13, so 48 countries uh, on those two trips. But in total, I've been to 127 countries. And how many? How long did this take you to do these trips? It took me two years and one month for, for the Africa and the South America trip. That is fantastic. Wow. Uh, I, can, I, can only, I can only dream of something like that. So what's, yeah, no, so what's next like for you? Uh, next is I've got a lot of shows. I've got the Milan Bike Show, Manchester Bike Show, London Bike Shows, various things here, like interviews, and uh, just trying to get talking to other bikers, you know, because I enjoy that side of things. I love the shows because you get to have a chat with I'm people sure. who have got the same interests as you. So it's the opposite of when I'm traveling. I get a bit of, uh, a bit of socializing done. Right. And then it's off uh, before the end of the year, it's off to Colombia. Um, to buy a house and uh, well, to get a mortgage and uh, head on the next on the next trip. Excellent. 
Uh, so how can people learn more about Spencer Conway and your travels? Yeah, absolutely. I have a website. It's www.spencer-conway.com. Um, and I'm also on Instagram and Cheesebook or Facebook or whatever you want to call it, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, yeah and, and they can catch up with me there. There's all my photos. There's uh, promo videos. There's the old stuff. You can also get my video if you're interested at Duke Video. That's yeah. available yeah. worldwide. Is your stuff, is stuff also on uh, YouTube? Uh, I've got a few things on YouTube, but I'm not big on there. But if people don't remember any of this, if they just Google Spencer Conway, you can find almost everything there. And it's right. also got my email address and ways people can get in touch. Because if anybody wants any help, if anyone's planning any trips to Africa or South America, I'm there to help. A any advice anyone wants, contacts, uh, you know, visa problems, whatever. It, I mean, that's part of the fun of it, isn't it? Helping other riders. Absolutely. Tell us about your fundraising page on your website. Yeah, I'm raising money for Save the Children. Um, the money for this particular trip is not showing up on the site at the moment because we're rebuilding it. So it's a very old site. That was what I raised in um, Africa. Right. But in fact, I raised 500000 Wow. Nice. Yeah. So very half impressive. Yeah, that was a, it was quite a treat. I even ended up going to see the Prime Minister, Ooh. which was very strange. Yes, a biker in the in number 10 eating cucumber sandwiches. I felt like a fish out of water. But apparently I was one of the top private fundraisers, so I felt chuffed about that. Excellent. And if you can just help one, if you can help one kitty in Africa or South America, why not? I've got two children, so. There you go. It's, well, how, it's how, close. Do, how do they feel about Daddy running off and uh, doing these adventures? I think they're super happy. I think they uh, pretend to cry, and when I've gone around the corner, they're like, party time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they all do that, though? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, at, at the beginning, when they were younger, when they were like nine, ten, they they were not happy when I was heading off. But they're older now, twenties, uh, so uh, twenty twenty one. So now they, now no, they just think you're crazy, right? Yeah, they think I'm crazy, and they got their own life to live. Anyway. Of course. All right. Well, Spencer, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast. This is absolutely wonderful to talk to you, and I oh, certainly hope God. we get the opportunity again. Oh, thanks a lot, Ted. Yeah, please invite me on to your next show when I when I succeed in my next one. And thanks for uh, thanks for supporting bikers because shows like yours really help a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show. All right. No worries. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode 134 with my guest, adventure traveler Spencer Conway. So go on over to www.spencer-conway.com to learn more about his adventures, his videos, and where he went. There are photos, videos, and, of course, his donation page to help children in the regions that he passed through. And links to all of these will be in the show notes on the Motorcycle Men website. And speaking of things like websites and stuff, uh, YouTube. Go over there to the Motorcycle Men channel, and then you can listen to our shows there as well. And also go over to Facebook and check out Motorcycle Men Podcast on Facebook we do have a Twitter page as well. Just search for Motorcycle Men Podcast. And we are on Instagram, though there's not much up there. Uh, so next week, we will be back in the V-Twin Cafe with Tim Buck 2 and Chris the Joker. And our topic is going to be the hobby of Harley bashing and how it is bad for the motorcycle industry and, of course, for Harley Davidson. So don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters whose links you will find on our links page and all of these podcasts and YouTube channels and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport. Uh, 
and our passion. And what we ask is that you go out there and you ride safe and speak kindly of motorcycles and motorcycle riders. And don't be a jerk. All right? So from Timbuktu, Chris the Joker, and me, Ted, wrong way, your host, thanks for listening to the Motorcycle Men podcast where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids. <laughs>